And you can go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 14 through 28 today. So Luke, chapter 11, will be our text. And uh, we'll be in verses 14 through 28. Eileen knows the knows the ropes, so she's kind of showing somebody how to how to navigate the church on Ramble Place. So we live we we live in, in in such a a visual a highly visual culture, and you know I can kind of understand that because we pictures or or things that are seen can sometimes. Uh, convey meaning that words uh, sometimes are, are challenged to do. And, you know, I almost, you almost can't do a lecture anymore without putting some sort of visuals up there. I mean, I almost don't do a sermon without some sort of visual presentation. We're always wrestling, okay, should we show a video here or what do we do? Uh, the classes I teach, you know, it's almost demanded that you have some sort of visual presentation to help express or to um, provide content to help explain the content of the lectures. And so as we approach this passage in Luke chapter 11, I I think we're going to see at least one of the reasons and, and a big reason why Jesus did miracles. One of the reasons why Jesus did miracles, oftentimes we see that he had compassion and so he did things, but oftentimes it was an a visual presentation of who he is. He is demonstrating by the things that are seen who he is and what his mission is. And today in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28, I think we're going to see very powerfully Jesus presenting his identity and his mission and the implications of that for those who are watching on, this was probably especially important for those who, who lived in a visual culture who, who were probably more likely than not non-literate. Maybe some of them read, or, and if they did read, they didn't have a lot of books to read. It's not like books were produced in the same fashion as they are today. And so even a copy of God's Word would have been something very rare and, and not something that maybe a lot of families might have. And so Jesus comes along and, and he gives his, his, uh, his sermons and his lessons, but he also backs that up or uh, adds to those uh, sermons these visual presentations of who he is. So before we get started, let me just give you the setting of where we've been and where we're going. We need to remind ourselves that at this point, Jesus is completely committed to Calvary. In chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Luke records that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. Um, So the disciples have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's teaching them about discipleship, but he's headed to the cross. And, And he is utterly and completely committed to the cross. Jerusalem is his goal. You and I, we generally run away from conflict and run away from those things that that might be uncomfortable. And Jesus has now set his face towards uh, Jerusalem. What we're going to be seeing this week and over the next couple of weeks is that there is this increasing attack, this increasing animosity 
towards the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've studied the New Testament, you see that there is this time of great popularity where everybody loves him and thinks he's great. And then as, the, as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, animosity increases. And we're going to begin to see his adversaries bring greater and greater pressure against him. But this is a continued lesson for, the, for his disciples. They're, they're going to learn. Remember, discipleship is still one of the big themes that is going on here. And one of the things the disciples are going to learn is that they are not above the master. They're going to see Jesus suffer. They're going to see him be rejected. They're going to see um, animosity and adversity. And they are going to learn very well that when he dies and is resurrected and ascends into heaven and they carry on the ministry after him, that they too will endure similar animosity. So that's kind of where we've been. Um, Where we're going to go today is this is a really important um, passage of text regarding the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of his teaching. In other words, the claims of Jesus, what Jesus is going to claim today will disallow any proposal for neutrality. Well, I can kind of, I can have one foot in the gospel or one foot in the kingdom and one foot out. Jesus is going to completely take that off the table today. So if you are here today and you're trying to live a, a life that is kind of Christian and kind of not, um, I pray that the Spirit of God would convict you because Jesus is going to take that off the table for us today. This passage of text certainly reminds me of uh, the words that C.S. Lewis famously stated in Mere Christianity where, where he discusses the idea of Jesus being a good teacher and he says, let's just take that absurd notion away. That is a completely ridiculous idea. Jesus cannot, his claims do not allow us to make him a great moral teacher. To claim he is a The claims that he made disallow us from saying he was a great moral teacher. His claims were either the man had to be a lunatic on par with saying, I'm a poached egg. I think that's the term he used. Or he's a liar. Or he's telling the truth. But let's not make the silly and absurd assertion that Jesus was a great moral teacher. He is either the Lord of all because that's what he claimed. Or he's a nut job, or he's a liar. But the idea of a great moral teacher, he did not give us that option. And in today's text, we are going to see Jesus does not give us that option. He takes all of that off the table, and he is calling for a 100%, I'm all in commitment. Or, if you are not, Jesus is claiming, you have utterly rejected me, but there is no half-hearted, halfway commitment with Christ. And I think this text gives us uh, that in great audiovisual detail. Let's read our text today in uh, Luke chapter 11. I'll begin with verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? 
For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And this is God's inerrant, sufficient, and holy word. Well, we begin with this account of Jesus casting out a demon. And it is an obvious miracle. And I want to lay out right at the beginning that this is an obvious miracle. The miracle was never disputed. The interpretation of the miracle was hotly disputed. We're going to see three or four different interpretations, but nobody's saying that this miracle did not occur. They're just interpreting whether or what exactly it means. And so we, we get this obvious miracle. So the question now with the crowd is, how do we interpret what just happened? There's this mute man. Jesus, it's, it's a demon-caused um, muteness. Jesus casts out the demon. The guy speaks, and now everybody's marveling. What do we do about this? How do we interpret this event? So we see that the crowd marveled. I'm going to assume in the crowd that the that is marveling that some were going, man, this is a work of God. That's implied. But marveling is both positive and also has a negative connotation. And we see a negative connotation because there is a group that says this is not a positive thing. What Jesus is doing, he is doing by Satan. Jesus is actually empowered by the prince of darkness. Jesus is empowered by Satan himself. He is an emissary of Satan, and it is by the power of Satan that Jesus is doing this particular work. So that was certainly one view, one interpretation. Like I said, the miracle's not disputed. The interpretation is. And one group says, well, this was of Satan. Well, there's a second group. And the second group uh, sees this exact same event and says, well, we need more information do another miracle. If you would just do a sign from heaven, then we would believe. I don't know, you just cast out a devil. But we need a sign from heaven. I think Jesus is going to address them specifically um, in the next text that follows that we'll, we'll, we'll look at next week. Um, so he's not going to leave that charge unanswered. But for, day, for today, he's going to look uh, at, at a different claim. So we have these, 
At least these two, we at least have three claims. People are marveling, I think, going, oh, look at that. That's amazing. This must be the Son of God. Others saying, no, you are of Satan. You are of the devil. We need, and then a third group saying, we need more information. You got friends like that? No matter the blessings and the greatness and the miracles that God does in their midst, they're saying, well, you know, I'm just not sure. I just need something more. Today in Bible study, we, we looked at the heavens declare the glory of God. What more do we need? And I will say this. When we consider the historical work of Christ, that Jesus Christ was a man who lived on this earth that is overwhelmingly, I mean, there's probably not a scholar in the world who would say even the most skeptical historians, skeptical of Christianity, say, yeah, Jesus lived. And you have to account for the resurrection. It's a historically verifiable event. What more do you need? What more do you need than the fact that Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again? Well, we need a sign from heaven. He's given you a sign from heaven. Lived, died, and rose again. Here's one of the other things that we see is that the work of Jesus is dividing this crowd. And the work of Jesus demands a response. There is no neutrality here. People are responding. And people are, are divided over the work of Jesus Christ. It's no different in our day, is it? Christ does a great work in your life. Maybe you lived a particular type of lifestyle and then you weren't. And people say, what happened to you, man? They see an obvious work of Christ. I've shared this before. You know, my, my dad said the same thing to me. He said, one day you're, you're selling dope out of the house and the next day you're carrying a Bible. What happened? What happened? An obvious work of God. So when you see the work of God, we need to respond to what God is doing. So Jesus responds to these, um, to these interpretations. And he says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A divided, a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom Stand. In other words, what he's saying is your reasoning is utterly and completely illogical. It makes no sense. How is it that I would cast out demons by the prince of demons? If Satan is against Satan, how can Satan stand? Satan doesn't fight himself. A divided household will fall. Your argument makes no sense whatsoever. It is illogical for Satan to work against Satan. So his first response is, well, that just makes no sense. His second response is that you are utterly and completely inconsistent. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, which is just another name for Satan, all right, and I won't go into all the details of, of the origins or whatever, the, the etymology of that word, we'll just Beelzebul is just another name for Satan. 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, I'm not the first guy to come along to do this kind of work. You have, there are Jewish exorcists and even the disciples cast out demons. If, if it's acceptable when they do it, why is it not acceptable when I do it? Are they operating under the power of Satan? If so, why have you not accused them? And if you accept them, they are going to be your judges because you are being inconsistent. And so Jesus says, your arguments don't hold any water. They're illogical and they're inconsistent. And then he gives them another option, a third option. An alternative. And it's this. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If what I'm doing is done by the power of Almighty God, then you need to respond. You need to think of the implications. If God is in your midst doing works of power, then you need to think of the implications. You need to think of what that means for you. If the King of the Kingdom is in your midst, will you bow the knee? Will you submit to Him and call Him Lord? You're just trying to find excuses to not bow the knee. Miracles, and especially ones such as casting out a demon, is evidence of the arrival of God's promised kingdom. And it's it's evidenced in such a way that Satan's power is now confronted and is in the process of being overthrown. In other words, Satan, Satan's power is now being overthrown. And I am the king of the kingdom who overthrows the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of light has come. The kingdom of darkness is now being confronted and defeated. And so you need to decide then what you're going to do. Because let me tell you, if you do not side with me, you are siding with the kingdom of darkness. You are going to be of me or you are going to be of Satan. But if, so if I cast out demons by the power of God, you need to consider the implications of that. The rule of God has arrived and so now you must surrender to the king. To do anything else would be satanic. In fact, he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not with me, basically he's saying you perhaps there are some uh, Matthew records that there are some Pharisees who are making th this claim. You claim to be priests of God. But what you are is you are endorsing the rule of darkness. Because you do not accept the king of the kingdom. The kingdom has come. It's defeating the kingdom of darkness. Now, choose sides. Which side are you on? And that's for us today. We are here. We're going to share the gospel today. We're going to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But we're also here to tell you there is no neutrality in this war. There is a battle. There is a war. And there is no Switzerland. You are not Switzerland. You are on one side or the other. You can say, well, I'm not going to make any choice whatsoever. And you know what they all say. That's making a choice, isn't it? I'm going to present to you the King of the Kingdom and call us all to repentance and to a place where we call upon the name of the Lord 
and by calling upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And then he tells this very interesting parable which helps us or which helps clarify this issue of non-neutrality. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he tells this parable that highlights this idea there is no standing on the on the sideline. There is this strong man. The parable is that there is this strong man, but one stronger than him comes along and attacks him. And one thing I didn't really notice, and I was just I'd been reading some other people who, who wrote on this this text, and uh, uh, one author commented, noted the, notice the offensive attack by Christ. It's Christ who's taking up the offensive. Sometimes we think, oh, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And we always think of the church or the work of Christ kind of like deflecting these attacks. Jesus comes on. He's, he's throwing down the gauntlet. He's on the offensive. He's attacking at this point. And Jesus then, as the stronger man, defeats the powers of darkness, the powers that had held people enslaved in sin and in corruption and in blindness and in the inability to see the beauty and majesty and glory of God. Jesus comes in and defeats that strong man and overpowers him and overthrows him and then says, now you are with me or you are against me. And again, I've shared a little in my testimony when I came to Christ. One of my guiding principles were, I wasn't sure if there was a God or not, but I always thought if there was a God, I want to be on his side. If he can show himself real, I would be on his side because he's way stronger than I am. And I would hate to be his enemy. So I was very pragmatic, at least I thought so. It's like, well, it just makes sense. You get on the winning team, right? If you, if you can get on the winning team, get on the winning team. Don't be on the losing team. So if God could prove that he actually existed, then, yeah, I would follow him because, man, he can crush me like a bug. To me, that just made sense. Hey, be with me or against me. In other words, the story of the gospel is the story of how Jesus, through the Spirit, overcomes Satan, sin, and the flesh. It is His power and authority that reverses the curse of sin and imparts to us new life. Folks, you need to understand that the incarnation was an invasion. It was an invasion of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus Christ put on flesh and dwelt among us. This was a full frontal attack. It looks seemed so innocent in a little baby, helpless in a feeding trough, but make no mistake. This was Normandy. Full blown attack coming against the powers of hell. And we continue on. Because evangelism is an infiltration against enemy lines. We are continuing to attack. And evangelism and is the means by which we attack. And the gospel is the weapon which we wield and 
and destroy and tear down the works of the enemy. And then Jesus goes on and he tells us very strange, gives us this very strange account. And I'm not going to go into a lot of the details here, but I do want to um, highlight a few things. And he talks, says this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, sinking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the new ha- the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And I want to comment a little bit on the dangers of moral reform. Again, we're pointing to the reality of non-neutrality. It seems here that we're describing the person who tries to be neutral tries to improve their life through moral reform. In other words, tries to become a good person. But I'm here to tell you that to live a better life, either if it's through some sort of exorcism or just some sort of self-improvement, I want you to know it's an ambush. This is a war. That's an ambush. I'm just going to improve my life. I'm going to be a better person. But such an approach leaves a power vacuum. And Jesus says that demon comes back with seven more, even worse, even more evil than himself. And the last state is worse than the first. Let me tell you this. Satan loves moral reform. He just loves moral reform. Just loves it when an alcoholic becomes sober and the drug addict becomes clean. Satan loves it when the abusive husband becomes gentle and he loves it when the nagging wife becomes encouraging. Perfect. Loves it. Because all you have now is you have a sober, clean person going to hell. The result is the same. And here's why it's even worse. Because now the person says, but I'm a good person. See, I can understand me going to hell when I was an abusive husband. When I was an alcoholic and I beat my wife, yeah, I understand that. That should send a person to hell right away. But now I'm a good person. I'm sober. I love my wife. I take good care of her. I provide a good income for her. I take care of the kids. I am a good person. And your destiny has remained unchanged. Love's moral reform. And the gospel is not is not about moral reform. I believe Christians will be morally reformed. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is about being born again. The gospel is about a new creation. The gospel is about Jesus Christ taking up residence in your life. It's not about getting rid of some sort of evil spirit that drives you to do wicked things. It's about infilling you with the Holy Spirit who compels you to honor and love God. That's the gospel. And moral reform and neutrality is not an option for the believer. So we, the picture of a person who has improved his life without the presence of the Spirit is an utterly and completely dangerous position. And it's even more, I think the more evil spirit is the one who assures this person of their goodness. Sometimes when we think, oh, this these, these demons, these seven more that are more evil, they must be wicked and have horns and make the person like, I don't know, 
Ted Bundy or Son of Sam or something like that. I think, and perhaps I could be, but let's not disregard the seven more and more evil may convince the person of being good. A good citizen, a loving wife, patriotic. Maybe even goes to church, does their civic duty. And is content thinking now I have a relationship with God. You see, to evict the old tenant and not replace him with the Holy Spirit just leads to greater deception. The devil must not only be cast out, the devil must be replaced by God's Spirit. Reformation without conversion is a trap. We had a person here one time that we dealt with and uh, she was involved in all sorts of crazy weird things. And she asked, she said, do you do exorcisms? We'd been speaking with her about calling upon the name of the Lord, repenting of her sins, casting away her idols. She said, no, but do you do exorcisms? I thought to myself, well, even if I do, I would never do it to you. That would be the cruelest thing I could do. You need to be born again. I don't need, nobody needs to cast out a devil. You need to repent of your sins, call upon the name of the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that renders your request utterly useless. You don't need somebody to cast out a devil. You need to repent and call upon the name of the Lord, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then whatever it is that you're, that you're wrestling with, we can probably deal with that. But to do what you're asking, if successful, and not replacing that with the Holy Spirit would only lead you into much greater danger. No, we're not doing that. We're not even going to entertain that idea. You need to call upon the name of the Lord. You need to be saved. And we live in a day and age when doctrine, that is teaching, is diluted with pragmatism. Most people are more concerned with, does it work? If I come to your church, will you make my marriage better? If coming to church will make me more successful in my job or more likable in school or I'll be more popular or whatever. Folks, there are plenty of programs out there that are going to help you with that. You do not need Christ for that. There are plenty of self-help avenues to get those things. And unfortunately, I think too many times in the Christian realm, we have uh, exalted this idea of pragmatism and just bettering somebody's life. But there are many avenues to better your life. I know Buddhists who have nice lives, good lives, good marriages, do well in their job. Without conversion, a person simply becomes successful. They become positive. They become popular. They become a nice person going to hell. And so Satan rejoices 
and sobriety and nonviolence, etc. Jesus is calling and is declaring that there is no neutrality in the kingdom. If he is Lord of Lords, if he is the King of the kingdom, there's no neutrality. It's time to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. And so we are here to um, share with you the truth of the gospel, that there is a God. He is a holy God. He has created everything. In fact, he has created you and he has created you in his image. And let me let you in on a little known secret. There are no good people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People say, I'm a good person. Well, I hate to burst the bubble, but there are no good people. All have sinned. There is none righteous. No, not even one. We've all sinned. God has created us. We are accountable to Him. And every single one of us has rebelled against a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. Well, that doesn't sound real good. There's none righteous. All have sinned. And the wages of sin is death, yes. And the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. There's the good news. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. He was utterly and completely innocent never sinned, bore the wrath of God on your behalf. All of God's wrath has now been poured out upon Jesus Christ. And if you will repent and call upon the name of the Lord, that wrath of God has been taken by Christ and He will impart to you His righteousness. And you will not only be without sin, but you will be righteous before a holy God. So we are here today to tell you, you're going, well, you know, I, I think I can kind of walk a fine line. There is no fine line. You're in or you're out. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. But there, the Bible doesn't talk about any intermediate kingdom, any halfway house kingdom. And Jesus is not giving us that opportunity here. So I, I'm going to implore if God is speaking to your heart today, and, and you're like, well, I've played games long enough. I've tried to be a nice person long enough. I'm done doing that. I need Jesus Christ to save me. Folks, we would love to spend some time talking with you and uh, talking about what it means to live as a kingdom citizen. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're still going to stumble like every single one of us. This guy right here, me, all right, fail often. blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover my frequent sins. And you cannot out the grace of God. So call upon His name. It's interesting, after all of this, this woman cries out and says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. In other words... <laughs> Your mother is truly blessed to have a son like you. She's heard his teaching, seen his works, and says, man, your mother is blessed to have a son like you. I love the way Jesus redirects this. 
Natural family ties are not the point. The point is to hear God's word and do it. That is to believe the gospel and act upon it. Folks, there's all sorts of things that we as believers should hear from God's word and do. But again, if you are not a follower of Christ today, the very first thing you need to do is hear God's word, repent of your sins, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Hear God's word and do it. The call to repentance, the call to to surrender your life to the King of Kings, that's the first thing. Blessed are those who hear God's word and keep it. Believe the gospel and act upon it. Folks, there's no neutrality in the kingdom. There are no Switzerland's, as I said. One must be either in the kingdom or outside the kingdom. And I am imploring you today, this day, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow, you're not guaranteed the next five minutes or the next minute. None of that is guaranteed to you. But we need to seek the Lord now while He may be found. And I'll conclude with this. The works of Jesus recorded in Scripture tell us who He is. And this work clearly tells us who He is. He is the King of the Kingdom of God who has bound the strong man and destroyed His works and has come to set us free. Folks, the King has come. As I've said, there's no neutrality. You either serve Him or you oppose Him. And if you ally with Him, He will overcome satanic strongholds. He will fill you with His Holy Spirit and He will make you a new creature. He will make you born again. So I guess our question today then is, what side are you on? Let's spend a few moments and silent reflection and just consider um, what God may be saying to our hearts based on what we've heard today. Let's spend a few moments in quiet reflection. Now, our Father, you are so good to us. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who invaded the kingdom of darkness, overthrew the strong man, and now rules and reigns supreme. We call upon you and we give you praise and thanks. And uh, we give our lives to you, Lord God. When we falter and fail and are weak, Lord God, we trust that you will pick us up, dust us off, forgive us, and continue to be our Father. We thank you for your loving kindness towards us. So have mercy this day and grant us peace. In Christ's name, Amen.